Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. (laughs) And, you know, the instructions were to go up to this conference room. And I'm expecting some like tech startup or something. I'm expecting a bunch of like programmer bros in their early 20s. And I get up there. There's about 200 people dressed in fox costumes. Just fox costumes? Foxes, yes. All foxes? All foxes. Wow. (laughs) Is that like specific furry fandom? There's endless specific furry fandoms. From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're By The Sound, your community-invested podcast. Each episode, we speak with the brightest minds from Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. We discuss art and pop culture as well as local news and politics. I'm Sarah May, sitting this week with Chelsea Alvarez and Aisha Hauser. On this week's show, we'll review the cinematic experience known as Cats. Then I'll meet with former Seattle City Council member Kirsten Harris-Talley. Finally, we'll discuss the homelessness conference everyone is talking about. This is By the Sound. So, Chelsea Alvarez. Yeah, hi. You saw cats. I saw cats and let me just take my glasses off. (laughs) I saw cats and the thing that kept, oh God, the thing I kept thinking throughout the whole two hours was these are adults. (laughs) (laughs) These are grown adult people, some with children of their own. Some with Oscars. Some are knights. Fucking Sir (laughs) Ian McKellen drank out of a hubcap. Dame Judi Dench was curled up in a fucking basket. (laughs) And honestly, can I just say, like, Dame Judi Dench curled up in that basket was one of the best moments in that film. Like, she acted the hell out of it because she's fucking Dame Judi Dench. Like, I believed her as a cat in that basket. Mm -hmm. When a person, an adult, an adult, an adult human, an adult human, Mm -hmm. goes out of their way to, like, move like a cat, uh, Mm -hmm. I can't handle it so I just like I spent most of the movie with my hands over my face just horrified um I just I like it's hard to even unpack the like layers of embarrassment it was like passing through like a Dante's Inferno of like different flavors of embarrassment um Rebel Wilson and James Corden both gave fat minstrel oh, no. realness. <laughs> um, Idris Elba, there was a point, so I got to see the version that uh, the CGI was off. Like I saw Dame Judi Dench's wedding ring in one shot. Oh, okay. I do believe I also saw Idris Elba's taco meat. Like I saw his <laughs> chest hair. In one shot. Um, I don't really know what Jason Derulo's career has been like up to this point. My understanding is that he's like a pretty major pop star. I feel like that's probably over for him now. (laughs) Well, what about 
like my pop star. I got to know about Tay Tay. Like I'm, I have an, uh, a totally like sincere, unironic like affection for Taylor Swift. So I don't know I'm if sorry, we've discussed everyone. this, but like I hate Taylor Swift deeply. Um, it happens. It happens. So when she came on screen, I uh, dissociated. I was not. I was not present. Although she does roofie the cats. Like that's her role. She roofies all the cats so that McCavity can. Whatever. Well, I mean, oh, I can start oh, getting into plot points, but like, it's not going to make any fucking sense because cats are going to make any fucking sense. Like, also, like, they make this whole big deal about like, what is a jellical cat? Like, we're jellical cats. Like, we're all fucking <laughs> jellical cats, and we're going to make the jellical choice. But like, they never clarify what is a jellical cat. <laughs> the fuck is a jellical cat? Like, is that's, it like different from a regular cat? Like, or like Kelsey. all cats jellical cats? Like, nobody fucking explains anything at all. It's horrible. Like, what the. Hold up. Hold up. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the EpiPens or Cats <laughs> broke Chelsea Alvarez. Who do we hold responsible for this? Well, I, isn't it T.S. Eliot? It, it's, it's, okay. no, yes, it is. No, it is. No, yes, no. Broadway. T.S. Eliot. Brought it to Broadway? No, listen. T.S. Eliot. Wrote a whole entire book of poems about right. fucking Jellicle cats. Yeah, yeah. Oh, because he never explains what Jellicle is. No. Okay. Okay. No. No. Yeah, no one yeah, knows yeah. what a Jellicle cat is. Gotcha. T.S. Eliot wrote his whole fucking bullshit about Jellicle cats. Andrew Lloyd Webber read these In his wisdom, yeah. bizarre little poems and was like, let's put it to music. This is gold. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't wrong, though. Cats was the longest running musical of all time. Like, people fucking love cats. And I thought that it was embarrassing that people loved cats like just on the face of it like just that they're into this thing where it's like grown-ups patting around like cats but uh now that I've seen it and like experienced it this is where things get weird this morning I was like oh fuck I want to see cats again I'll go see it with you Well, now I'm now I'm intrigued. Like now, it's like a, yeah. it's like when I have a toothache and I can't stop touching the tooth. Yeah. Like now I'm intrigued. I've just yeah. read so much. Is it true that mice have little children's faces on it? Because some one reviewer yeah. wrote that the mice like, are disturbing. They yeah, like, there's that's what mice with wrote. little children's faces. There's um, cockroaches with human faces that oh, God. that Rebel Wilson like just chumps on one by oh. one. Um, the reviews are hilarious. Jennifer I mean, I Hudson's was... nose is running the entire time, <gasps> which is violent anti-blackness. I mean, by violent, the way, violent. Um, her character might be a sex Thank worker. You. It's never quite clear, like what exactly uh. is the like issue. Yeah, let's talk about sex, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> That's the part of this I'm I'm most interested okay. in, other is than Tay Tay. I've never seen the Broadway show. I've never even had interest. Sensual. sensual. Okay, sensuous. <laughs> Um, I actually was curious about this too. And like, I want to know how is cats being received by the furry community? Like, is this a great question? Like, honestly, like if this is, if this is working for them, like if they're having a good time with this, then fine. Great. Cool. It's fine. It's fine. I want there to be, I want there to be a meaning behind this. And I don't really care what it is at this point. Like I want it to have some value because the actual movie is so nonsensical and frustrating and like there's no reason that this movie ever should have been made there's no reason 
Some of them wear shoes. Some of them don't. Some of them have like almost human looking feet. Some of them. Okay. Can we just talk about skimble shanks for a second? I don't know what they are, but yes. Skimble shanks, the railway cat. Um, I don't know what it is about him. But the moment Skimbleshanks, the railway cat, came on screen, I was consumed with rage. And it was like everything about him just like made me so fucking mad. Uh, I hate his stupid red pants. I hate his fucking mustache. He's got a weirdly round butt that like... And I love butts, all butts really, but like I love a round butt, but like Skimbleshank's fucking round stupid butt in his stupid red pants just made me want to fucking punch him in his stupid fucking face. Wow. Um, I love trains. I love public transit. I especially love trains. Like Skimbleshank's the railway cat should be like right up my alley. Like I love cats. Do you I like love hobos? Trains. I, yeah, sure. I love hobos. Um, Skimbleshanks, the railway cat. It's so fucking infuriating. Uh, <laughs> most of the people furries here who heard about it are not happy with it. Oh, really? And what somebody said, um, cats plunged too deeply into the uncanny valley. It's true. And that while there's a chance the movie will be beautifully shot and have amazing performances. It wasn't, and it did. The way the cats look are a hard sell for me. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> so I, 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 what I've heard of uh, about the musical is um, the athleticism of the dancers. That that's what it's all about. Oh, you know what else beauty. I fucking hated? Also in Cats is fucking Les Twins, which um, Beehive knows what I'm talking about. And like, this is not a commonly held opinion, but I really cannot stand Les Twins. They are French twins that dance for Beyonce. They're like part of her show. She overuses them, I think. And I have a similar response to them as I do Skimbleshanks the Railway Cat. Like, their their mere appearance uh, fills me with uh, an unreasonable, disproportionate anger that doesn't actually make any logical sense. And I spent the first half of the movie trying to figure out if those two twin cats were, in fact, lay twins, and they were, and fuck them. One of them's named Larry. <laughs> but, you know, one of my visions for this show was to highlight art that makes people feel... I do feel. I do feel something. You have a lot of feelings, I have a lot Chelsea. of feelings. Art that impacts people's lives. I am impacted. <laughs> I see that. Like, is it possible that this was the de- desired outcome? No, I think people who made it thought they were going to... Oh, it, my God. There was something sadistic, sadistic? Uh, about it this. It is sadistic. Dame Judi Dench was supposed to be in the original cast of Cats. I heard that. So I get why, like, this is, I like, know. a legacy thing. What I don't understand... Jennifer Hudson Yeah, is, She sings Memories, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and she fucking crushes it. Great. She could have done that in her spare time. No, but, like, she, she can fucking sing Memories, whatever. She doesn't have to dress up like a cat. No one, no one had to do this. No one had to do this. No one had to do this. No person needed to do this. No person needed this to happen. And like movies take, this is one of the things that comes up around showgirls, right? Like it takes hundreds of people signing off on all manner of decisions in order to get a movie made. And it's so baffling when a movie gets made and every decision is wrong. Like, it's statistically improbable. And yet, 
here the fuck we are. (laughs) I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's not even like... There's no internal logic. There's no consistency. (laughs) Sometimes the cats are human-sized. And sometimes the cats are the size of cats. And sometimes sometimes the cats are human-sized and the mice are mice-sized. And it really doesn't make sense. Some of the cats wear pants. Some of the cats wear fur coats. Fucking Rebel Wilson looks like a regular cat. And then she unzips her cat suit and is wearing an outfit underneath her cat fur that also has... My question is, would you recommend cats? I think that it's good to feel things. Mm. It's good to have human experiences. I saw cats in the theater. I don't go to the theater often. Mm. Um, I saw cats in the theater because I wanted to have the shared experience with strangers of cats. So it was, a, it was a communal moment of... It was a communal moment of what the fuck just happened. What the fuck just happened, yeah. What the fuck did I just watch? Yeah. Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our listeners? Ah, glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle-area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group. What are we posting in the Facebook group? (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show, we offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day. That's dope. How much will it cost to join? Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month. How else can fans of the show invest in this community? Our supporters on Patreon who contribute $10 or more per month will receive exclusive invitations to buy the sound meetups at Seattle area coffee shops, bars, and parks, where they could meet by the sound co-host, guests, and other local fans of the show. Sweet. Where should listeners go to donate? They can visit bythesound.net and click on the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or go directly to patreon.com slash bythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bythesound. Our guest today is Kirsten Harris-Talley. She's a former Seattle City Councilwoman and my former boss in that role. She's a tireless activist and an inspiring public intellectual. She is active in the hashtag block the bunker and hashtag no new youth jail movements for policing and incarceration reforms and a founding board member of Surge Reproductive Justice. These days, Kirsten is serving as interim executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Washington and is co-founder and principal at In the Works, which fosters belonging and healing practice with communities of color, women, and youth-led organizations. She is one of my very favorite people in this whole damn town and the world. Kirsten, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. You have an extraordinarily impressive resume, and you are admired by many people in Seattle for your hard work and activism. You've inspired scores of people. So naturally, the first thing we hear it by the sound would like to know is, what TV shows have you been watching? (laughs) Oh, TV is one of my favorite mediums. I was a a latchkey kid. I feel like as most 
80s children were at some point. My go-to show I need to catch up on is Insecure. The last full season of something I watched was Game of Thrones, which disillusioned me and many (laughs) the final season. But the Great British Baking Show this time of year, Mm -hmm. I've been rewatching the Christmas episodes, of course, which is always great. And... um. Jason has threatened to make me watch all of the Marvel movies. I need to catch up to the Avengers. So I'm that's going to happen. <laughs> that's okay. It's my fault for marrying an adorable, adorkable comic book nerd. Indeed. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on the morning that you were appointed to a vacancy on the Seattle City Council, you sent me a text. <laughs> <sighs> Did you save the text? I'm. I'm. Uh, it better be saved. I okay. Now that you've said that, I'm going to go and make sure that. It, it's, it's, are you going to read it? I'm sure. No. I use the f bomb like four times. <laughs> it's something to the effect of, "I might get this fucking thing." <laughs> that sounds. That sounds accurate to what that morning felt like. Yes. And and I was thrilled, and you invited me to join you, and I gave it all but like half a second's thought. I accepted. Uh, your offer instantly to join you because I knew that you would be doing good. And I knew that you wouldn't just be a placeholder and that you were going to act with fierce urgency because you're that sort of person and that it, it would be time well spent. And I knew I wouldn't regret it. And Aww. And I'll add to that, having gender transitioned at the age of 35, I thought part of that deal was that my life in political involvement, especially in any official level, was over. Wow. Uh, wow. I, I, I did not believe there would be a place for me in a place like your office. So it was oh. very surprising and, a, you know, for me, a big fucking deal. So thank you. Thank you for saying <laughs> yes. Luckily, the day before, I had had a small panic and called a dear <laughs> friend, EJ, and I said, if I get this... I'm going to have to start this job. And he said, well, you know, all the most brilliant folks make a list of who you would want to stand beside you to do that. So luckily I'd done that literally the night before (laughs) and you were on that list. And I remember texting you and, and literally texting something like, I know I'm asking you to potentially quit your job of over a decade. Oh, and I did. (laughs) I I had been at that job for for 11 years. Yeah. Yeah. And you're a single mom with two two kids. Yes. <laughs> under no circumstances <laughs> should someone say yes to this. And you immediately were like, yes. And I said, you should talk to your ex-wife. But you're like, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you saying, yeah. I appreciate everyone who said yes. Every person I asked said yes immediately. And I am forever grateful. So thank you. It was, it was a, a, a beautiful shock. And now that we've had some time... After that experience, what do you think is our legacy of your work at Seattle City Council? Oh, wow. Um, Very early on in the work, I remember chatting with some folks at the People's Party and talking over. And I, at that moment, was really nervous about what it was to go go in. It's such a different... Being an activist, you get to do things as boldly as the vision you have for the world all yeah. the time. Yeah. And it was sobering to think it's like, okay, now I have to translate that into a decision making context during the Super Bowl 
of, you know, city council days, right? Like Annual budget. The budget season yeah. is when it goes down. So, and one of the things someone there said, because I, I, at that moment was time out, what am I going to do? And they, they looked at me and they said, what are we going to do? And so I really took that to heart. That we attitude, it's a it's a generous thing to think of a we going into office. And I think we did that really well. I think our office very immediately became a place that felt welcoming to people. Yeah. And we all, all of us took really seriously that we were there to help represent the full city and the spectrum of all of that. And we worked really hard to hear a lot of diverse voices very quickly and really rallied and did the work to do that. So I think about those moments with the employee hours tax, right, where we were having debates 72 hours into ex- being at the job, you know. Yeah. And, um, right away. <laughs> right away. So uh, what's uh, commonly known as the head tax. Yes, the head tax is um, the sort of media, media and um, uh, language for it. And we, you know, rallied. Our office talked to over 20 business owners yeah. in like a week. Uh, that took a lot of table. work. They were at the table, right? Like folks were like, we need those voices at the table. So we made sure to, to hear out small business owners as well we should because we need to protect small businesses, uh, particularly in a town that's growing as quickly as Seattle is. So that to me feels really good that we really created a space like that. I think the other piece is a lot about what we were able to focus on is, as our office talked about the employees hours tax. We were really focused on what it was to rebalance our tax code to serve all people. And I think that we really, I think that message resonated. I'm really proud of the fact that after that, serving on the progressive revenue task force, ultimately, right, a better version of the policy we were looking at when we were there passed. Yeah. All nine members of the council at that time seated. It did not stick. It was reversed, but it showed what was solvable with that policy. It wasn't going to solve everything um, that was going to try to rebalance so that those who have the most we're contributing to the whole so that we can take care of people. And I'm really proud of what we were able to do to elevate some of the humanity at the heart um, mm. of the issue for homelessness for our homeless neighbors, because it's real easy to get into a rhetoric mode around that. And we worked really hard to talk about the fact that there are hardworking people and families doing everything they can and still find themselves in homelessness. And then we had to have a response. And like you said, there was an urgency in that moment around that um, and that we weren't going to ignore that. And we were able to rally with some of the best organizations at the forefront of that looking for solution. And we were able to really quickly work with them and figure out which programs that they were doing that that were really succeeding and make sure those were funded. And I'm also really proud of the pause that we took with the budget to look at what was happening with the North Precinct. And we really dug into that budget and made sure that where there were dollars being spent, that it was around community-informed equity standards for that precinct and that decision. And there's still a lot to happen with that. But to start that conversation over again where it should have started in the first place, and that was a lot to do in 51 days. Yeah. We did a lot. I don't know when we slept or ate. It was the sort of time where there were days, not all of them or even most of them, but there were days when I would work for 14, 15, 16 hours straight and still be energized at the end of the day. Wow. Not like, you know, because it's that fear of surgency of now. So we had this thing. It was going to expire. We knew what our parameters were, and I found it very energizing. It was a short window to get as much right as we could. Yeah. So, you know, now that after we left, the employee hours tax was 
passed and then repealed. Do you think that real progressive change is possible for our city's tax code, whether it is a so-called head tax or not? Yeah, so I do. Is it possible for our city? Yes, to a certain degree. It's extraordinarily limited. A lot of that limitation is actually because of a lot of preemption at the state level Hmm. that keeps municipal and county decision makers from having a lot of tools at their disposal. I was really um, clear, we all were out of our office, about what we were up against with thinking through progressive tax policy. I will say progressive is a spectrum. (laughs) And um, the employees' hours tax is not the most progressive of tax options. Not yeah. by a long shot. Yeah, it, it was it not was by really, a long shot. And nor was it a solution to the problem. No. It was just, it was a start. It was, it's pennies <laughs> to yeah. the dollar of what was needed, right, for the scale of what's needed. Yeah. So the fact that we have those limitations warrants exploration. It's going to take a lot of work. I am still optimistically <laughs> observing what's going to happen with a regional solution. The fact that the only conversation around revenue that has come up over two and a half years for a regional solution is a sales tax mm. is not a viable revenue yeah. option. It's more regressive taxation. And it's a far more regressive option than the employee hours tax. And that's what I mean when you're looking at a, a, a spectrum, right, of pro- progressive taxation. Ideally, we would be actually reducing sales tax over time because it's the most regressive of any form of tax, and increasing more progressive taxes, right? Um, The fact that in Washington State we do not have an income tax has put us quite in the rears of other states of our size with our population, particularly when you think about the spectrum of what people get paid in our state compared to other states, of what we could have in revenue. We are leaving billions of dollars on the table per year by not having one of the most accepted forms of progressive tax there is an income tax. I think the biggest barrier to us having progressive taxation in Seattle is not having enough nuanced conversation about what revenue would mean and who are the folks who should be participating and who is over-participating right now with our tax code and who is under-participating. And I think that's ultimately what led to the reversal of that unanimous decision to have uh, the employee hours tax passed is that you know, this rhetoric of any taxation is bad for people mm. really resonated with folks, right? We know now in hindsight that the um, Seattle Chamber of Commerce had a poll, you know, going that had some really good messaging that really fed into that um, deficit, what's mine is mine sort of rhetoric that yeah. resonates with folks. The scarcity mindset. That scarcity mm. mindset. Yeah, my co-hosts, um, they couldn't be here today. It's uh Christmas Eve, and um, you know, whereas Kirsten Harris Talley is happy to come up to my place, uh, <laughs> some people are home with their families. Um, so to be you fair, know, there's my husband's just, home with a kid with a fever. Oh, so. thank you, Jason. <laughs> Sacrifices were made. <laughs> but you had the uh, clear-minded resolve to come up here and talk about progressive taxation. <laughs> And, um, you know, and and state preemption, which is something that, you know, I need to be beating people over the head about because it's uh, my co-host. I invoke them because uh, we were talking recently about gentrification on the show and the idea of rent control came up. And I regret not mentioning that the reason Seattle doesn't have rent control ostensibly uh, is, is not because the Seattle City Council doesn't want it. 
um, we're told, but it's preempted at Correct. the state level. And unless we can get a legislature that'll, you know, that has the political will and courage to make it happen, we're just not going to have rent control in Seattle. Yeah, there are a number of policies that impact cities and counties disproportionately in Washington state that are preemptively restricted on the state level. And um, I think it's something well worth exploring on the state level. I think a lot of those preemptions need to be lifted. I mean, even our tax code, our tax code makes perfect sense when you're sitting in the mid-40s, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In a, a, a moment of war pause in a state that's mostly oriented at that point around agriculture, extraction industry, and this newfangled Boeing. Our test code made a lot of sense for that economy. That was a really long time ago now, you know, and I was talking in a lift car, just as as one does talk about Texco when you're taking a ride somewhere. And we were just talking, he just happened to bring up, you know, as a 1099 employee, because he was doing Lyft as a full-time job himself, Mm -hmm. how shocking it was when he got into his tax profile, like how processing his taxes was different. Yeah. And how how much of a bite that was out of his earnings and um, what renegotiations with Lyft has been about the percentage that drivers get. Like, this, just this whole story opened up. It's something I actually do anytime I, I'm, I'm with folks who I know are in part of our gig economy. I ask them what their experience is like, and it's... I mean, you're you're in the gig economy, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm a 1099er now, and it's yeah. it's um, it's a whole uh, new world. And I'm not entirely against it. I think there's a lot of good to be said about that sort of model, but obviously there are some downsides. And I don't want to uh, open that whole can of worms, but I will say <laughs> I know from personal, uh, uh, sometimes aggravating experience, um, how much you talk to the people you meet. Um, <laughs> I do the like to hear people's stories. folks you meet to, to hear people's stories, you know, no matter how much the, the people working for you really want your attention <laughs> at that moment. But, you know, I'm just real selfish that way. I'm uh, sure my husband and children have a similar complaint. But, yes, you are very curious about the people you're meeting out there. I, I will testify. Um, really, though, it, it's impressive. And, and a, another thing I was really impressed about working for you was the way you centered art in our daily work. In ways that wouldn't necessarily be visible to the public unless they had come into our office, which many did. But from the start, it was not an afterthought. You and, well, all of your employees were, I think, zealous about decorating that office, getting nice things to look at, which luckily, you know, when you work at uh, a city council, there's this... The city collection. The city collection, yeah. uh, you know, so in a warehouse across the street, you can choose from it. And that was a wonderful surprise. I did not know about that aspect. Yeah, of- and we asked to see works by people of color from Seattle, and it very quickly enriched our environment with a sense of place. Just put an exclamation point for me on your relationship with art. Yeah. Can you, can you tell us some about yes. wh- where that has been in your life? Yes. Art? So f- folks who don't necessarily know me very well may not know, I actually am an art school dropout. Uh, actually, I had a partial scholarship. I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago right after high school and studied a lot of mediums. My main mediums um, were theater, performance, but I love their program. They have you explore all mediums. The best class I had was my art history class. I remember the very first, everyone had to take art history. The first 
utterance in the first class is our professor stood up and you're in this huge auditorium, 700 plus students. And he said, look around. You are all the best artists in the communities you came from. Only one in five of you will do anything that relates to the arts when you leave this institution. And it just terrified me and delighted me. I remember like something about him just being honest from go. And then he said, but no matter what happens in your life, you will use the lessons from this class, which is true. I mean, an understanding of art history is really an understanding of world history um, because when you really start to understand art history, you can see all the stories of oppression and colonization and, right, everything's layered. Um, but everyone finds a way to do art. Everyone and, and finds that, a way to do yeah. art. And I I think the reason I gravitated to the arts is because in my family, there was a history of artists and creatives. My grandmother on my mother's side uh, was married to a painter. Uh, she herself and my mother as well. They they are still humans who just wrap beauty around everything. My mother's a cosmetologist. She's a beautician. She owns her own salon and hair and nails and what makes people feel good about themselves. She does art. So, and I've always appreciated it. And we live in a city loves art. There's art everywhere in this city. And I really appreciate that. One of my favorite pieces, in fact, at City Hall is the piece when you're coming in from, is it Fifth Avenue? And it's the paddles and the hats yeah. on the wall, right? Yeah. Canoe Voyage, yeah. um, which is a really beautiful piece. It's a love, lovely area to sit and wait for people. And, it's one yeah. of my favorite spots in City Hall. And I don't know if everyone even knows. It's one of those art pieces. I don't know if everyone notices it. Um, it's a very moving piece. But yeah, I felt that was a wonderful surprise that we got to pick art for our space. And you know, we had we were an office space of all um, fims, mm-hmm. which was really great. We had a lot of uh, chairs and spots where folks could cozy up, and and we got to go together. Uh, the King Street Station had just opened their um, opening exhibition. We all got to go uh, as a team and go. One had a, a tour of that exhibition, which was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And most the reason we got taken there is because we had made a request for queer trans and POC and um, femme-made art. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, almost all of it is at King Street. So we got to go visit the collection there. Yeah. And I just, I've always embraced art. And I've, and even, like you said, people can make art out of anything. And that's, I think, what I've always appreciated about art is that you can have beauty everywhere in your life. It just takes a little bit of intention. And the other thing I love about art is art's about perspective. And it can change as much as your perspective does. And that's really unusual. We don't have a lot of things in our life that you can look at the same thing and actually see it differently. Lots of different ways and times, depending on what you're thinking and what you know or don't know when you see it or participate with it. So, yeah, I love I love that, too. And we got some of like the other amazing minds and activists in our city. Like their ideas were on our walls. Right. So like Davida Ingram, we had a piece there. Lulu was in it. I loved, you know, seeing my friend Lulu. It's been a long time. Naomi's piece, right? We had the Black Lives Matter piece up. So there were a lot. I loved that. The Touchstone 2 of uh, Indigenous Art. Mm -hmm. That was a nice thing. That's one thing, going to Councilmember Juarez's office, because she had an amazing collection of Indigenous art, too. I also loved going to every council member's office, and you could learn so much about them from what art was in their space. And, you know, them and their teams. 
we're in a hugely unique part of the world, I think, that I love what's happening at Langston right now. Um, I'm really excited about what's happening at the uh, Northwest African American Museum. There's some really amazing touchstones for the arts. And here you can even go places for free, right? My mm-hmm. mom was out the summer before last, and we were at Kubota Gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole time she kept being like, this is free? And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's just a, it's a, not just, it is a public park. It's an amazing park. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that that, that made a difference to you, too. I thought that was one of the, those lovely, joyous moments to be able to engage with our local artists and art and our space. It's just, it's part of our, our lifeblood. It absolutely is. And I'm I'm delighted to see it coming up in, in new, amazing ways. The Lavender Project, I don't know if you know about mm-hmm. the Lavender Project's amazing work. They, they did, I just went to, they, they did a second annual uh, arts auction. Mm-hmm. So really, again, I guess it always comes back to story for me. Ultimately, mm-hmm. the way people choose to share their story, and art is such a unique way to share story. I feel very blessed to be in a region that really seems to embrace artists, and in all capacities, music, music play, poetry. You know, we have institutions and amazing folks who get to be here and thrive here all, with all those forms of art. It's really unique. Now, you, you were raised in Missouri, right? With the, which definitely has its own folk art traditions. Yeah. So I, yeah, I grew up most of my life in a tiny, um, you blink, you miss it, town called Chahawi, Missouri. And then we moved to a larger small town called Warrensburg when my parents divorced. I was in my teens. And it was a unique place to be, both at Chahawi and Warrensburg. Chahawi's very, very, very isolated small town. Pop 300, our K through... 12 was less than 60 students, and we were very isolated from other folks of color. Um, my father worked at the university in Warrensburg. He was in the chemistry department there, and my mother had her own salon. I'm the oldest of four kids. The thing I appreciated about growing up there, my godparents were quite lovely. Now I understand the context of their life would have been the northern migration, how they ended up Mm -hmm. in Missouri. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that as a child. I just knew their stories of how they had come up from the South. And we got to spend summers on their farm, which was really lovely experience. And then when my parents divorced and we moved to Warrensburg, my grandmother I was telling you about, who I really got a lot of my love for the arts from, and my aunt, um, we all shared a a very large house with my mom and my siblings all together. And um, that was a really wonderful experience to have multi-generational extended family. But yeah, it was a hard, in many ways, a hard place to grow up and in some ways easier. Certain perspectives, the show me state in Missouri, folks don't mess around. Mm. There's no passive aggressiveness in Missouri. There's just aggressive aggressiveness. So you always know where people stood. Uh, It's a very overtly racialized place to live. Mm. Um, Active KKK country, even as a child, you were aware that there were active chapters of the KKK. Certainly now they've been reinvigorated in a way that I don't think had been seen in several generations. And many uh, fundamentalist Mormons in your area, right? Yep. A lot of fun. Well, all sects of fundamentalist, Mm. anything you can imagine. Um, But yes, uh, very large uh, Mormon uh, population there. I actually grew up RLDS, which is a reorganized sect of Mormonism, which is not uncommon uh, where I grew up. My father's black, my mother's white, and growing up black, quote unquote, biracially black, um, I identify as black. 
brought a very specific way in which you were treated in Missouri. And my parents always had a perspective that this is just a moment in your life and there's a bigger world out there and we're going to teach you about that world so you can make some decisions about how you want to participate with it. And I always will thank them for that. It gave us a much bigger perspective than what was available to us immediately where we grew up. I now have a deep appreciation for how I grew up because everyone where I grew up was poor. We were all we were all really, really, really poor. I did not understand wealth disparity till I went to college. Mm-hmm. It was a bit shocking. Yeah. <laughs> To learn about it in Chicago. I went to Chicago because I was like, I want to go to a big city. This is the first city, uh, and it really lit a fire in you. It, I, I mean, yeah. I, I think uh, I, I really think of you as a city person, but that's just the the context I've known you in. Yeah, is. you wouldn't if you would go camping with me, and oh, then you could no. see me. <laughs> uh, Kirsten has invited me into the, the wilderness with... Uh, it's not going to happen. I, I, I enjoy a good <laughs> a good wilderness. So um, I do have a dream of having a place in the country again. I do miss it a lot. And that's one thing I love about Seattle. You can go an hour in any direction if you want to <laughs> and um, find a cozy cabin to sit at and look at nature out the window or find yourself fully immersed, as I am sometimes, under a rained, rained out tent. <laughs> but yeah, coming coming to the city, the um, explicitness of of wealth disparity was yeah. really clear. Um, and that's not something where I grew up because everyone was poor. You didn't shame anyone because they were poor. You helped them. So everyone really did help every, everyone else. Even if they might not like you because of your skin color, when the going got tough, you would still show up for folks, which mm-hmm. was a really interesting lesson, I think, about the human experience uh, that I carry with me as well. And I definitely know that that fostered for me, seeds of what would become my activism later. That thing of when you see folks who need help, you you don't sit by and wait. You roll up your sleeves and do whatever you can right away. Yeah. Or should. Yes. So we could use a bit more of that around here. <laughs> uh, but you've traveled so far from the buckle of the Bible belt. I, I was thrilled to see you take this leadership position at NARAL Washington. But this is far from your first work in reproductive rights. Can you say some things about what Surge Reproductive Justice is? Yes, I love Surge. I love Surge. So um, I'm really proud to uh, be one of the folks who helped found Surge. It's a founding board member. And Surge is a reproductive justice organization based out of Seattle that does work throughout the region and really focused on reproductive justice. And reproductive justice was a term coined by women of color really in response to the reproductive rights movement. And at the time, a lot of reproductive rights was around only abortion rights. And certainly we need to preserve our abortion rights. And we have to keep fighting on that front. And that's why I'm so proud of the work that NARAL is doing and being a part of that organization. But women of color were noting that Certainly, if we needed to understand our reproductive lives, that we needed to, to move and embrace and talk about a whole spectrum of issues all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And certainly, that sensibility has followed us into 2019, right, as we're now starting to talk about reproductive rights for all types of bodies. And they really wanted to look at what our reproductive freedoms and access were at the intersection of social justice. And what year did search start? The initial work started in the early 2000s and really uh, came together around 2007. 
And then we got our IRS status in 2013. So a lot of work had been in collaboration with a lot of folks for a number of years before we went and did the official get your nonprofit status thing. At that time, the pharmacy board was looking at reopening the rules around birth control disbursement. And they were looking at, we have a particularly good rule that says, hey, if you think that your religion says you can't disperse birth control, no problem. As long as someone else who's serving that customer, when they come up to the pharmacy desk and give them what their doctor has prescribed them, you're good to go. You can uphold your own religious rights and the client can still get what they need. Everyone's happy. And the pharmacy board was re-looking at that rule and saying, oh, maybe we don't actually have to have the rule that way. It had gotten head-to-head. It was a lot of folks on the far religious right saying, of course, you know, all birth control is bad. So anything that says anyone has to get birth control at all is a problem. And Surge brought into the context of the conversation that, well, one, birth control isn't the only drug that folks Mm -hmm. can withhold if it's not dispersed at time of sale. Mm -hmm. Um, And secondly, Folks who are pharmacists aren't the bad folks here, right? And in fact, this is a really good law the way it is now. It holds both religious right and people's right to have access to care. It's a really well-balanced law. Why change something that's really well-balanced? And we really also wanted to give voice to the fact that for a lot of folks, pharmacists might be the only medical provider you can afford to see. Because you can go anywhere and talk to a pharmacist. They might be the only provider to be able to translate anything into any language, right? Like they are a conduit to a lot of information and access to care for folks. And we didn't want any fight that made it seem like we were pitting pharmacists, right? Against this potential change in law. Mm -hmm. And something about bringing that lens, because we understood those most impacted by the issue, shifted the conversation the way we organized around that fight. And that's what Surge has continued to do. Uh, A lot of abolition work um, helped change a law around doula and midwifery access for folks who find themselves birthing while also incarcerated so that they can have doula and midwifery services as others can have access to in Washington State. That's a huge win for what it can look like to have um, client-centered care, even while folks are incarcerated, especially while they're incarcerated, they need even more care. Yeah. Um, and so many folks who find themselves incarcerated have already missed so much of prenatal and other care that having right someone, a doula there to give them support as a person giving birth at the same time someone's helping to make sure that child comes into the world safely. These are really big changes um, that are changing the way in which care can and should be happening in Washington State. What we're seeing is more folks are coming forward and sharing their stories in those reproductive justice spaces is that we need to be thinking of policy that really understands all folks and how they're impacted. The Parity Act that just passed on the state level, I was a part of the Hero Table, which is a table about 25 organizations who all come together for reproductive justice rights and access issues. And we took a lot of care with that policy to make sure that we really had really explicit considerations both for undocumented folks and how they can and can't currently under at that time under Washington state law access services and, and to, to make that an easier system for them to access services. And then also being real vocal about trans folks, Um, particularly with reproductive justice law, we've woven in these very prescriptive ways of describing policy that leave folks, right, with trans bodies out in the cold, the way the policies are written, because we just did not consider, right, that, that these folks also need care in a very particular type of way. So having two years of conversation to make sure that a policy wasn't going to disproportionately impact folks who were already disproportionately impacted by the policies we had on the books. 
those sorts of things, taking the time to do that stuff, that's the kind of stuff Surge does. They convene folks, make sure we're really taking in considerations. That margin in approach to policy, it's a game changer. And it makes sure that you have really good policy that lifts all boats. So I'm really proud of the work that they've they've been able to do in all that time. It's kind of hard to believe it's almost a decade I've been doing that. It strikes me as very trademark. Kirsten Harris Talley kind of project and and it's the you know the the scope of diversity well the 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 scope of diversity and your ability to embrace complexity and compassion in equal measure in great measure for both is just impressive and exactly what I love to see from public officials because sometimes folks can be a little too you know one way or the other when it comes to complexity or compassion, you know, you have a lot of both. It's that's kind of you to say it's it's interesting. I've been, you know, the solstice just happened, mm-hmm. the winter solstice. It's the shortest day, longest night of the year. And I always take that time to sort of reflect on what's the last bit year been like. And I've had a lot of change in this last year. And I just had been thinking about the human condition, about what you're talking about. Like the whole world, it feels like, is at this intersection around complexity and compassion right now Mm -hmm. and asking the question, what are we going to do about it? I feel like the whole world, right? Chile, Hong Kong, the Philippines, right? Seattle, we're having protests here all the time. Everyone's asking this question. All the issues we're dealing with now, we've we've sort of fixed all the easy ones. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to start digging into these really big, complex ones already. Right. Um, Climate, housing, you know, what are we going to do about this economy that that's kind of working for us? But um, depends on who you are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Like just reading in the news. Right. Um, Despite economic growth, quote unquote, nationally, poverty has increased over 14 percent. That just proves your point. It's not working for all of us. But the only way I have found to get through complexity is with compassion. Mm -hmm. And one of the big lessons I've learned this year is the second I get impatient or lose my capacity for empathy is the moment I have to take pause and refill my cup because you lose sight of the compassion part and you're you're not going to make the best decisions after that. So, Well, you've started a new business recently. Can you tell us about um, what you're up to at In The Works? In The Works, yes. So I'm super excited. Uh, I get to work with my business partner, Teddy McGlynn-Wright. And Teddy and I have known each other for 17 years somehow. It seems hard to believe. I first met Teddy. uh, He was doing curricula development and training at Planned Parenthood. And I was at an organization called Cardia. And we were writing sex ed curricula together. And we were training folks on how to do... Um, culturally proficient work um, in classrooms with young people. And from Go, just really work well together. Both of us come with a clarity on equity and a full spectrum of equity. And we also both have a a deep uh, commitment to healing practice in work. To your earlier point, some of these complexities, we're going to keep evolving and getting better at it, but it's always going to be a struggle. Understanding and acknowledging that and always choosing the most healing path forward of what can help us all be in belonging and move forward together is a really huge part of how we endure the struggle together. And Teddy and I try to do a lot of work with organizations, individuals, coalitions, when for whatever reason we seem to have lost our footing and where our common purpose is and how to all get there together, we try to help folks reorient and get back there. So it's been a really fulfilling experience. If It feels like in a lot of ways, 20 years in the making, I... I 
early on in my career, I feel very blessed. When I first had my first um, quote-unquote desk job, I got to work in an organization called Cardia. At the time, it was called Center for Health Training for a woman named April Pace. Uh, she's no longer with us. She passed a few years ago. But I will forever be grateful for her to be in my early 20s and have my first real job getting to work under a black woman who was fully empowered and emboldened in her worldview and led with equity. I always took that lesson. I I didn't know better at the time. I thought that's how everyone, everyone did their work. But in hindsight, it was a game changer. And that's really a lot of what Teddy and I are bringing into to this work, right? How How do you lead boldly? How do you say the things that need to be said with honesty, but in a way that can call folks in and help them build better things together? Your your call uh, to call people in is something that's really stuck with me and been a huge life lesson for me. And uh, it's something that I hope this podcast will be able to achieve is, I mean, from time to time, of course, we're going to call people out. But I think there's a lot more growth for everyone by calling people in. A lot more building to be done. Usually more growth on my part to Mm. to do it well. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What kind of city do you want to see Seattle become? I think the Seattle... I want to see is an amplification of the parts of Seattle that I love so much Mm -hmm. and just more room for that. I moved here in 1999 and it was a really different city um, in some regards. And it was the exact same city in others. I love what is happening right now at the epicenter of the central district. I love the Liberty Building. I love Africa Town, what's being built right at the intersection of 23rd and Union. Uh, Niles Edge is a healing space, a queer trans, black black femme led healing space. Um, there's just a there's a vibrancy that's resurging there that is wholly embracing right explicit culture, yeah. <laughs> explicit blackness. Uh, I see I'm seeing the same thing in the international district, right? Um, mm-hmm. Seeing what happened with the Wing Luke, uh, you know, project as as that really has settled in the historical tours that are happening there again, like an amplification of the stories of folks who've built that neighborhood and made it what it is. I'm really excited about what I'm seeing around anti-gentrification models that are popping up, um, where folks are saying, hey, we can all prosper and our our neighbors um, who aren't prospering as quickly as others can stay in place. Those kind of conversations really excite me. I, I want to see more of the Seattle that feels like a cultural center that embraces diversity from all over the world. I love mm. that. I like One of my favorite moments is when uh, the Sounders were getting picked up, you know, and and folks were embracing soccer. And I remember listening to the radio one day and someone was like, the reason I love soccer is everyone in the world knows and loves soccer. Like I want I want Seattle to feel like that, the thing that everyone can feel like they're a part of. I I really love that idea. And I, and to do that, I want a Seattle that's more more equitable, more explicitly equitable all the time and and saying it just wearing it out there right like this is these are the folks most impacted here are the solutions they offer we're going to give those a go i want to see that over and over and over again just to deepen the stuff i already love about the city it's wonderful um well to learn more about kirsten harris tally i hope you will and the services that in the works um, is providing for people and organizations go to www.intheworks.llc.com Kirsten, thank you very much. 
Thank you, Sarah. Have a good Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our guests? It means that we pay them. Every guest interviewed is paid an appearance fee. Is it normal for podcasts to pay their guests? No. People say all the time that our time is our most valuable commodity, and yet most guests on radio and podcasts aren't paid a dime for their appearances. Huh. Our show's supporters who donate on Patreon help us to pay our local guest, and in doing so, they're investing in our local community. Are there other ways our Patreon supporters can help us pay our local guests? Yes. By the Sound community members who sign up for the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership levels are able to designate their first one to two months donations to a particular local guest of their choosing. If we are able to get an interview with the person they've chosen, then that guest will receive the amount that was pledged for them in addition to our normal guest payment. This is a great way for fans of the podcast to help us choose our guest, create a platform for interesting local people to share their voices, and to reinvest in our own community. Nice! How do listeners get in on this deal? They can visit buythesound.net and click the donate button. That's buythesound.net. Or they can go directly to patreon.com slash buythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. So Asia brought to our attention an article, uh, another one by Charles Medede. And he was talking about something that most folks in Seattle have heard of by now, and a lot of people nationally have heard of by now, which is something that happened at a local homelessness conference for All Home, which is the county's coordinating agency for homelessness. Mudede's uh, article is titled Black Performer at Homeless Conference Exposes the Limits of Empty White Cosmopolitanism. Uh, Aisha, what's this all about? So basically, um, Beyonce St. James is the performer, a transgender, black transgender performer, was asked to speak at a conference, and the theme was decolonizing our collective work. Our understanding was she was not paid. Um, she spoke uh, and then danced, a burlesque she dance. Spoke. I believe she spoke. I, I, believe I yeah, she saw spoke. That, she, spoke she spoke and then um, I be- that was my understanding. It wasn't burlesque. It was drag. Oh, it was dr- okay. It was right? drag. So I've read two I, different I, things. I would call it drag burlesque. Uh, I mean, what is, what is the places, distinction? The distinction in my mind is that, say, for the drag part, it's that she calls it drag. Most Drag performers are, in fact, gay men. Sometimes, because of the vagaries and and, uh, different points of entry into queer culture and personal developments that our society allows, um, sometimes drag performers are trans women. Usually, they're gay men. Anyway, Beyonce St. James calls her performance drag. I would call it burlesque and not stripping. In most cases, she's being referred to by conservative media as a stripper. Which Um, is willful obtuseness. um, Beyonce St. James, in this performance, she at some point had pasties. She had some stripper moves, but under the circumstances and with her particular appearance, I would put that under the umbrella of burlesque, except unlike most burlesque, this wasn't at a party or 
nighttime club type atmosphere, but rather a drab hotel conference room, yeah. which is part of part of our uh, this is the context optics problem. Okay, here. I would say here's the distinction I make: drag is a queer art form and is culturally relevant. Burlesque is steampunk stripping. <laughs> I don't I, I don't I wouldn't say that I don't respect burlesque. Uh, I just don't have a place for it in my life. I think that it is important, however, to um, make the distinction here that drag is a major and important part of gay culture yeah because this was a cultural performance and regardless of what it's being called it quickly got weird um and i say this as someone who has from time to time been at work events that are say extracurricular Mm -hmm. where things get weird all of a sudden and i personally when things get super extracurricular i personally have often had the thought why can't i just be at my desk like (laughs) because usually you know in most jobs these days you have more than enough to be stressing you out from day to day and and if you're if you care about getting your work done you just want to get back to it but so i used to work at an e-commerce startup which was horrific for many reasons but We had an all-hands meeting once, which for those of you who have been fortunate enough to avoid this sort of thing, it's a meeting where every single person employed is required to be there. Yeah. Um, And essentially, it's just a circle jerk for upper leadership. Yeah. And we were told that there was going to be a wonderful surprise at the all-hands meeting. Okay. So people are like, oh, maybe we're getting 401ks, maybe we're getting bonuses, maybe we're going to move to a better office. Something useful for employees. Something Never. useful. Something that we would actually want. What we got was the, what was his fucking title? I don't know. He was he was C-suite, but like I don't know what he ever did. He hired his favorite band, who happened to be in town touring with the Foo Fighters, to come play an acoustic set in our office. Oh, for fuck's sake. So I was held hostage. <laughs> exactly. That's this, this is the sort of yes. thing I'm talking about. I was Why held hostage the, by yeah. fucking cishet bro culture. Yeah. Having to watch this British collection of 25-year-olds while they spent at least five minutes between every song telling us the fucking backstory like it was... MTV Unplugged. I had to watch all of my bosses make their rock face. I wanted to die. I wanted to die. No one wants to be forced to sit through any kind of performance. That being said, drag would have been nice. And everyone I've seen in the video of this thing seemed to be enjoying themselves. I don't assume that was the case for everyone. Also, there's like kind of a social pressure to be look as you're enjoying yourself at any workplace function. And one overlooked aspect of this, I think, is how an employment lawyer might look at the scene, which is that if there is a pattern of sexual harassment for a particular employee, then this would become another data point, which is one reason why I felt it made sense 
for the director of All Home. I'm sorry, I can't remember if she resigned or was fired. She had to leave. The shitty part, one of many shitty parts, is that this Republican idea that people in social service jobs or government jobs need to live and work this Spartan lifestyle that can't compete with corporate or private sector work that can't provide living wages in a place like Seattle that can't call the best economically motivated employees into those positions. There's this idea that if you are doing good in your job, like say helping homeless people, you shouldn't be making a living wage. And I think that's like totally fucked up, like what our society is valuing. The one, as you alluded to, the one valid criticism that I read is folks weren't warned and they didn't know. And so they didn't, there's, there's something about choice there that I do think is important. Having said that, I want to quote from Charles Mudede's article because I think it's on point. The word culture has been on the rights shit list since it stopped meaning dead white men, Plato, Shakespeare, Milton, what have you. And I think that's the part where our notion of what we find acceptable in terms of the right is a moving target. It's whatever the fuck they don't like. So they're going to bitch about it. I also think it's important to note that this is a conference about homelessness and that a disproportionate number of black trans women are homeless. This was the organization asking a member of the affected population that they work with to speak, and she also performed. This was a black trans woman dancing, which to the right... Oh, yeah. No matter what she does with her body, it is going to be inappropriate in their eyes. And it's catnip for their their media channels to say, oh, here's Seattle. This is liberalism run amok. And it's frustrating to me how often the trans community is only coming to the fore for the – hardest or worst reasons Mm, or when this story came out about the conference um, and that there was a so-called stripper performing there without knowing anything about the story other than the headlines my first thought was don't be trans don't be trans please don't be trans because every time this kind of spotlight is turned on our community things become a little bit less safe for a while yeah And it perpetuates uh, a narrative which is unfortunately too true of, you know, the tragic circumstances. But that's not everything. Like most of us are just out there like trying to live our lives and trying to to do our things and don't necessarily need that extra attention. Not to throw shade at all on Beyonce St. James, like keep doing what you're doing. I'm certain that there is a lot of the attention that she's gotten for this that she would happily give back. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I'm sure. And um, well, she's been threatened. I mean, she's been yeah. treated yeah. like shit. Yeah. And and any of this kind of attention, like bringing, uh, reminding conservatives that trans people are a thing, is a dangerous proposition in our daily lives. But there are trans people in our community, um, who are doing 
good and positive things who are adding value, and we can choose to focus on them. We can choose to focus on the people that are helping the homeless and the positive ways that's coming about, but the feedback we get might not be as instant or as big I mean, every time Chelsea and I drive up here, we see, actually, encampments gotten bigger. It has. There's there's a turnoff that has tents. And I know that it'll only be a matter of a few weeks that that'll be swept. And where do those folks go? I mean, there's sweeps in the city. They where lose all of their belongings. All of it. And, and it's just so, that is what outrages me. That's yes. what That's what we should be fucking outraged about, is that this society has criminalized the poor since... Like, people got pissed once Roosevelt passed the New Deal, and then, like, a certain segment of this population has held a fucking grudge and made it their mission and their children's mission, mm-hmm. and, and, like, for generations to... And it culminated with fucking Reagan in criminalizing poor people and making it cool to criminalize the poor. Well, let's yeah. talk about the prosperity gospel again, because oh, if exactly. you believe... If yeah. you believe that being poor is a personal failure, yes. if you believe that a person is only allowed to live in poverty because they have somehow angered it's their God. Fault. Yeah, somehow it's their fault. Because they're living in so much sin right. that they can't have anything good in their lives. If you believe that, then it is okay for people to be sleeping in embankments and to have their whole lives stolen from them by the city. By the city. It's absolutely disgusting. It's disgusting. The issue in Seattle, and Charles get makes this point, is not that we don't have housing. It's not that we don't have the money. It's that we don't want to fix it. It's that we don't have the will to fix it. And nobody should be living in a tent on the side of I-5. Aisha, what are you grateful for this week? I'm grateful for my Jewish friends in Seattle. When I first moved here, uh, it was two different Jewish families that befriended us. And last night I went to have dinner with one of them, a Shabbat dinner, and it was fucking awesome. And it was just like, oh, I do have friends here. And it was, we all went as a family and their family. And I do not do that here as much as I did in every other fucking place I've ever lived. So I'm grateful to the Merriman Cohen family who invited us last night. It was super fun. Shabbat dinner is particularly like nourishing. It is. We prayed. Yeah. They prayed. We joined in. You know, we had homemade challah bread with salt. And it was just... Yeah, it was something very nourishing and sweet about it, and I was very grateful. And they were the first family to welcome us to Seattle with Columbia chip chocolate cookies, mm. chocolate chip cookies. It was cool. So that's, I'm, I'm grateful for friends. Chelsea? I'm grateful for the coffee machine at my new job. It's like, I've never seen a coffee machine like this before. It makes espresso drinks, and it's just in this little box. Like, you just hit a button there's a touch screen you hit a button and it makes your drink i think that when coffee is really hot it's yummy and when it's really cold it's yummy but if it's anywhere in between between it tastes like poison to me hmm. and this magical machine just makes me an iced coffee for free it's incredible so i'm really into that machine i hit it up a couple times a day it's you know what it is if i feel like i'm in the jetsons yeah And, like, I've been waiting for some sort of Jetsons technology to make its way to my life since childhood. And this is this This is the first one. Wow. So shout out to the Jetsons. Shout out to the coffee box. Um, I'm looking forward to a 
a long and delicious relationship with the coffee box. I am grateful for the conversations that I have with you, Chelsea, and you, Aisha, um, that will never make it on the podcast. <laughs> Those will really stick with me. So um, thank you very much. Can and I wait? Can I do some ASMR before we sign off? Oh, please. Okay. Okay, here we go. Kirsten Harris Tally. This has been by the sound. By the Your community sound. podcast. <laughs> by the sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy!